go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this evening. And uh, we're going to look at just a really interesting passage. Something that, it's just amazing how the Holy Spirit tends to do this. I, I don't know about you, but there's just these, it seems like almost every Sunday there's just, the Holy Spirit's like, here's a theme, and he just kind of weaves it throughout the entirety of, um, of the evening. So um, we just say thank you, God, for being here. We know that you're here. We sense that you're here. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for just being the Spirit of Jesus with us today. Uh, that Jesus, uh, he could walk uh, in the room, or we could have his Spirit in us. So we just say thank you for that reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to uh, be in the book of Acts tonight, Acts chapter 5, and we're reading uh, through the book of Acts, going through it, not just to kind of look at it sentimentally and go, oh, wasn't that an incredible time? Look what the church did. You know, they were so close to the time of Jesus. They just walked in such power. It was so amazing. Um, we're actually reading this to see what's possible. <laughs> we're reading it to go, what is possible for those who walk with the Holy Spirit and in line with the way of Jesus. And uh, we're just going, we want to see this stuff in our own church. So uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 17 is where we're going to begin tonight. It says this, uh, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Uh, what we're basically starting to see is that the same people who had an issue with Jesus, they have an issue with Jesus' followers. And so if you remember from last week, Bria gave an incredible message just about um, the disciples, the apostles, going around doing healing, uh, just doing crazy stuff, and the religious leaders getting jealous because of it. And that's exactly what we're seeing right here. They're filled with jealousy. Verse 18. They arrested the apostles, put them in the public jail, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple uh, courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this may lead to. I love what the angel says. He rescues them out of the prison. He's like, hey, you got put in prison for preaching the gospel. Let me get you out. And he's like, don't stop talking about this new life. Not, hey, don't stop talking about those list of doctrines that we want, you know, majority of the Mediterranean world to memorize within this generation and then expand to the rest of the world. It's, it's not even, um, don't, don't stop talking about the moral boot camp that Jesus puts people in so that they can be better people. No, the, the message of the historical Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, is life that is really life. I remember uh, I started following Jesus when I was 17 years old. And I remember, um, I, I really did sense his presence in my life. I really did sense God's love in my life. Um, but still, I had this mental kind of picture of God as he, he primarily exists to adjust me morally. You ever go to a chiropractor and get adjusted? I thought God is like a moral chiropractor. He's going to just like, there, there, and I'm going to be good. 
But then I read this passage. This is John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus speaking, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I remember reading that passage and it almost knocked me over. Every time that I sensed my, God's presence in my life, I could have said, that is life. I'm living life right now. Maybe some of you were just in this worship moment and you're like, this is really living. This is really life, giving myself to you. Don't stop talking about this life. Verse 21 says this. Uh, oh, we already read verse 21, didn't we? Oh, yeah, we already read verse 21. The passage, I love this. I read this, uh, gosh, this is probably a couple days ago, and I, I turned to my wife, and I'm like, this is the passage that I have uh, for this Sunday, and she goes, um, she's like, okay, so like, what's it about? I'm like, it's a classic whodunit. It's like, I actually, as I read it, I laughed out loud because you have to picture this. You've got to imagine that these religious leaders are like, oh, we're so going to bust these guys. They find them. They have the whole guard together. They put them in jail. And then they're like, they're like, let's go see how those guys last night was in jail. First century jail, no less. And they go to the prison and they're like, oh, this is going to be good. We've been, these guys have been annoying us. They've been preaching heresy. All of Israel is getting all stirred up by these guys. But we finally got them. So they go to the prison they show up and they're like, hey man, so how was last night? And the guards are like, hey, you know, it's, a, it's the night shift. I'm getting used to it. My wife wishes I was home, but no big deal. And they're like, uh, they're like, so where are the guys? They're like, oh, they're in there. And they're like, where? They're like, what? And they look in there and you, you got to imagine the other guy's like, well, hey, I told you I was going to sleep from two to three. What were you doing? He's like, dude, I dozed up. I don't know what happened. And they look and the guys are gone. It's an empty jail cell. They're like, we put them in there, didn't we, right? And they're, they're concerned. I love this concern. They, 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 it says this in verse 24. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. They're like, now these guys are going to be out there. And they're going to be not only talking about Jesus, they're going to be talking about how they escaped from our prison. These guys have become such heroes of the people that the authorities are worried. They're worried. It says this in verse 25. Then someone came, look. The men you put in, in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought, the, and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. These guys have become such heroes that now the religious leaders, the authorities in all of Israel, are worried about getting stoned by the people because the people love these guys so much. They love the message so much. Verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. The Sanhedrin, just think of like a court, basically. Um, we gave you strict, I love this. Hey, didn't we tell you guys not to teach in this name, he said? Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And isn't that so interesting, that response? You, this whole message that you guys have is basically centering on this. You're trying to make us guilty of this man's blood. But the message of the cross is that you are guilty of his blood. And when you realize that, then you get all the benefit of his blood. His blood actually washes you. It cleanses you. Peter understands that this is an opportunity to explain this. And so in verse 29, he says this. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. It's pretty punk rock. Verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given 
to those who obey him. I just love that. It's like this, this super compact, concise reading of the gospel. And, and oftentimes when I think about the way that we share the gospel, we cut the legs off of the gospel by not talking about sin. He's like, you killed him. You are guilty of wrongdoing. But the good news is that God is so good, he actually rescues us from even putting Jesus on the cross. He rescues us from the thing that was killing us, and he brings us to life. And that's why Peter is so passionate about this. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious, and they wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. This is that moment in a movie where like the, the camera slowly zooms in on a character as they just dispense wisdom. It's like, whoa. And the prophetic nature of this moment is so good. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will find yourselves fighting against God. It is 2020, and we're still talking about them. I love the lasting power of Jesus. Verse 40 says this. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. We're just singing, we love your name, Jesus. You're the beautiful one. Suffering disgrace for that same name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I want us to become a church where people can say they never stop proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> that church never stops talking about how Jesus is the Messiah. Don't you want to see that? Now, um, I can't help but read this story and really much of the rest of the book of Acts and recognize that the, uh, the apostles viewed suffering for the gospel different than I, differently than I view suffering for the gospel. Um, and that speaking this good news that Jesus is the Messiah will always come with some level of pushback. It, the thing is this, so many times we read the book of Acts and we go, oh, wouldn't it be so nice to live back then? Wouldn't it be so incredible to exist in that church? That church sounds a lot better than my church. Said nobody here, but other people at other churches have said this. Now, here's the thing. You cannot wish to see the fruits of the New Testament without paying the cost of the New Testament. You can't, you can't have it both ways. Do you want to see incredible things happen? You're going to pay a cost for them. 
And because I think one of Saints Hill's like hallmarks, one of the things that we have championed from the beginning and will continue to, is looking how Jesus thinks. Looking how the disciples think. And then renewing our minds to think the same way. So I, I just want to talk a little bit about the worldview of the apostles. The worldview of these apostles. It, it, it's hard um, to, to read this passage and not think, why would you go back for more punishment? It's, almost, it's so funny. It's like, they're just randomly teaching, and then they get locked up for that. So the angel's like, go to the temple courts. And they're like, really? Oh, geez, that's kind of like... That's like TPing, like, the, the police officer's house. Do we really want to do that? I'm not sure we really want to do that. So they, they go to the temple courts, and they start preaching the gospel they're not supposed to preach in the temple courts. And then they get, you know, brought back before the Sanhedrin, the court, and Peter's like, this seems like a good opportunity to say that message that they, we've been getting in trouble for. Why would you do that? But of this resolve, we must obey God rather than man. It sounds so good, but would I actually say that in the face of real prison time? The, the thing is that the apostles, they think so differently than most Westerners, don't they? Here's the typical worldview of Western people. Uh, most Western people have a personal project. They view their lives through this lens. I'm building a project, so whatever adds to my project, I want. That job adds to my project. That person adds to my project. This experience, it's going to add to my project. And so as I kind of build th this kind of main character of this narrative of my life, uh, it it's this project that I'm going after. Anything that hinders that project, i got to get rid of it. Uh, and then within, inevitably, you have pain in life. And so Life primarily becomes about pain management. It's I gotta medicate pain. I don't wanna feel it. And so you find that a lot of people living in the West, because we have so many resources, we're so abundantly wealthy, we find ourselves just going after things. Can this make me happy? Can this make me happy? Can this make me happy? Um, once we get things in our lives, once we get the, those things into our lives, the car, the house, the spouse, whatever it is, then there's always this opportunity horizon. It's almost like you can kind of see, and, and we all have this. I know what it is for me. You probably know what it is for you. You have this thing in your life that you're looking forward to. When I get that, it's going to be great. When I have the child, it's going to be great. When I get married, it's going to be great. When I become a grandparent, it's going to be great. When I buy that house, it's going to be great. And every time you kind of come over to the horizon and you finally get that moment, there's a few moments of like, wow, this is incredible. But then there's another horizon. And what this turns into is a hedonic treadmill. You guys know hedonism. It's the pursuit of pleasure, the, the trying to shun pain. And so what has been getting me high isn't enough. The things that I've been using, the opportunities I've been going after, the things that I've been filling my life with, I feel like I'm never actually gaining any ground. I'm just on this perpetual treadmill trying to satisfy this craving for life. And then you have image management. You have a personal brand. Image becomes reality. I was in Jamba Juice not that long ago, and I heard this 12-year-old. Uh, maybe that's funny. Jamba Juice is freaking incredible. So, um, <laughs> like, no shame. Uh, I'm in Jamba Juice. There's this kid, this 12-year-old, on his iPhone, talking with another 12-year-old, and he's just like, yeah, I thought about posting it. It just didn't go with my personal brand. I'm like, dude's on top of it. But th think about what has happened. With the advent of social media, all of your life has now been boiled down to economics. It's how can I market myself to get the thing that I want? 
And so we have this image management that happens in our lives. But the apostles, they're just so different. Here's what their, their worldview looks like. They have one project. It's heaven coming. <laughs> There's no personal brand. There's a brand of heaven. That's it, and it's heaven on earth. They rejoice in persecution. They're like, yeah, pain, whatever. I rejoice that I was counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ who suffered so much for me. They, they don't care about their reputation. I care about my reputation. I read about them. It convicts me. They don't care about their reputation. Pain doesn't seem to matter as much as the good news being told. It doesn't, right? Kingdom expansion with little care for image. That's their worldview. That's the way that they think. Help us renew our minds, Lord. And when I think about our desire for the things of Acts happening in our time and in our place... And the way that the men who wrote the New Testament finished their lives, it's somewhat unsettling for me. Here's just a little bit of a short list. Um, the, people, the men who wrote the New Testament, this is some, this is, these are just some of the ways that they ended their lives. Uh, one was boiled in oil. He didn't die, so he was sent to an island. That's John. You're like, Revelation's making more sense. Just kidding. Um, another one was crucified upside down. He didn't, he wanted to be crucified the same way as Jesus. In order to honor Jesus, he was crucified upside down. Others were publicly executed. This was the fate of the early church. And yet most of our lives, I'll speak for me, most of my life, uh, is centered, is founded on trying to avoid even the slightest opposition or pain. So how? How could they be this way? How could they be this way? Well, firstly, they weren't concerned with earth's issues. They, they, they weren't playing the same game that many of us are playing. They had eternity in mind. They understood they had one life to live. And for many of them, it was a short life. Uh, Psalm 90 verse 12 says this, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I, I remember the first time I read this, I was probably 18 years old. I read that and I thought, Oh, that's so good. What does that mean? Um, what, what that means is it means that you get wise by understanding that you're going to die. It, isn't, that, isn't that interesting? You get wise by understanding that there is an end. Why would knowing when death is going to come make you wise? Because what it does is it sharpens your focus so that you focus and you live for the things that really matter. If you have one more day, you know, this is classic. You got one day left on earth. What are you doing? And it's like you're spending time with the things that really matter, the people that really matter. You cut the waste and you begin to live for the real judge. You know that you're going to face God. You're not living to face people. You're not going to get to the end of your life. And there's going to be like, like the, the, the Twitter army of 2020 standing before you and saying, you didn't tweet the right stuff. You didn't say the right stuff. No, no, no. It's going to be God. <laughs> You're going you're gonna to give an, your, an account of your life to God. See, these, these men, they, they lived for an audience of one. There was one audience in their life, and that was God. I, I've been, um, I'm going to turn 30 this year, and for some of you, you're like, dang, that's old. For some of you, you're like, that is so young. you got so much life left to live. Um, and, I, and I know it's true, but for whatever reason, it's the first time in my life where I really had this like, deep realization that, wow, it's been 30 years and I can almost kind of calculate on average how long, you know, the average lifespan of an American male is. And I know I'm going to die. 
I've been thinking about this. I've been, I don't know why. It's just, I, I've, this has never been me, but I've been up at night sometimes thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm gonna die someday. And, and, and all this that I love in my life is gonna be gone. And, and wow, am I really ready for that? I don't know if I want that to happen, right? I just realized I have a limited uh, number of days. Um, but what that can do, and, and look, I, I'm kind of walking proof of this. So I'm preaching out of weakness right now. What can happen is when you realize that, you can either try to protect what you have or you can surrender it. You can either live for this world. This is why I read that passage in Hebrews. You can either live for this world and find that time and age slowly pull it from your grip. Or you can say, I'm more focused on heaven and I'm living for that, Lord. And just watch how free and how at peace you live. Jesus told us very clearly, he said, seek first the kingdom of heaven. All these other things are gonna be added. You don't need a personal project. You need my project and trust me, I'll care for you. He said, put treasure in heaven where moths and thieves can't destroy or steal what you have. In other words, everything that you build in this life if your whole worldview is centered around building a, a personal project here on earth, one day it will be ripped from you. But if you spend all your time thinking about what God values and pursuing those things, the things that really last, then you will find that when you get to heaven, there's a lot of treasure waiting for you. Having the end in mind, it sharpens me. I don't have time to waste. I want to cut what doesn't matter. I know that probably a lot of you guys, and maybe this is hitting people different ways, but for me it hit home because I grew up playing basketball. I know a lot of you guys probably know about Kobe Bryant passing away today in a, hor in a horrific way, in a helicopter accident. And, I, and I, I, it was just one of those moments. I, I, my brother texted me, hey, did, did you hear about this? And I'm like, oh my, it hit me so hard. But I grew up, you know, looking up to him and, and he was kind of a hero to me and, you know, all that. But I, I just had this moment like, you just never know. You just don't know. So how are you going to live? You got one life. That's it. What are you going to give it to? Help me to see that I have one life, God. See, the apostles, they understood, they had eternity in mind. And they're like, we're not going to waste this life. We're not going gonna to value this life so much that it keeps us from actually really living the life that's really life. But they also understood the power of the gospel. Um, the, the power of the gospel had taken them from literal peasants to world changers. They understood the power of belief in Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Peter is constantly standing up and giving the good news, giving the gospel. And, and, and I think it was this news of Jesus' payment for sin and a resurrection that led to this abandoned lifestyle. It's like he paid for sin. We're free. I don't have to worry about sin anymore. I'm not sin conscious. I'm righteousness conscious. I've become the righteousness of God. And you know what? We're going to live again. We're getting resurrected, so we're giving ourselves to the kingdom. The apostles understood that hell is a real place. They understood that the new heavens and new earth are real and the, that the message that Jesus, of, the message of the Messiah being Jesus saves lives and it made them courageous. It made them courageous. Now, maybe you read this story, and, and I think this is actually probably the case for uh, some of you in the room. You read this story, and you just think, man, that is so much like my life. <laughs> it's incredible. My life is exactly like those guys. I have, the, I have that same resolve. I'm going to obey God rather than human beings. And, and you just live with just this fearlessness. 
Um, if that's the case for you, that's incredible. Help lead us in evangelism. Help lead this church. Come meet with me. Come talk with me. Help us actually, that's what we're aiming for. We're aiming for this, nothing short of that. But, but I would imagine that for many of you, you're here and you're like, wow, the difference between my life and these guys' lives is huge. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to prison for talking about Jesus. Like, wow, that sounds crazy. And maybe even as I say the word evangelism, which is what this message is about, maybe even as I say that, all sorts of guilt and pressure begins to rise up in you from the church that you grew up in. Maybe bad memories from youth group. You're like, oh man, door to door. It's horrible. Standing out with tracks or, or standing in some public place. It's like, we're going to where all the strip clubs are and you're going to preach the gospel. And you're like, me? I'm 14 years old. You're like, I don't want to do that. I'm not saying that that's, I mean, I don't, I'm not speaking from experience. Maybe that's happened to you. Um, the, <laughs> maybe even, I, we're talking about evangelism, and you're like, oh, jeez. You know, it's taken, Alex, it's taken this long for Christians to become normal. Let's just not jeopardize it. <laughs> what are we doing? But at the same time, I know that there's a tension in every one of you, your, your hearts. You may feel that way, but also, we want to see people come to life. There's still nothing more exciting than being front row to someone dead in sin coming alive in Christ. It's so exciting. I, I, I like live for it. I, I just, those moments where you just go, even what we just saw right here, even people who are alive in Christ, getting more alive in Christ, you're like, oh my gosh, I would do anything just to give my life to that when you see it, right? So, so what I want to talk about um, are what I think are the most common reasons uh, we feel this tension and then we don't end up sharing Christ. Some of the most common reasons why we feel that tension, it's like, it's like, oh, evangelism, that sounds terrifying, but at the same time, I want to see people come alive, and we feel that tension, and then we don't share the gospel. Why is that? Well, first, the question is this. Well, do you know the gospel personally? It is the gospel, this message of Jesus, is it something that is beating your heart every single day? Is it something that you wake up and you go, oh, that's why I live. That's what I live for. Maybe you're here tonight and you've had a season of fire. You went to the camp. You grew up in the environment. You came from, you, you went to YWAM. And next thing you know, you're on fire. Now, and, and, and maybe as life has gone by, you, you, you go, that, that fire is so incredible. But, but man, life is kind of hard. And I'm not around the same environment of people. This is something I, I really hope that we become an environment of such a huge bonfire that just you can't help but be in this environment without getting set on fire. I really think that we're becoming that. But, but maybe you, you haven't been around that kind of environment. And so it just, the fire begins to wane a little bit. And, and eventually you find yourself, you're like, I'm not on fire, I'm an ember, <laughs> you know? So as we look at what the gospel is, I want you to really ask yourself, am I experiencing all of what I'm talking about? And could I explain this to my friends? Am I experiencing all of what I'm talking about and could I explain it to someone? The gospel is firstly this, it's absolution without flagellation. Flagellation, there we go, yeah, that's the word. Uh, pretty incredible word, but, but here's what I mean. It's the absolving of sin, this is what the gospel means, it's the absolving of sin without having to pay for it dearly. That's the gospel. All human beings struggle with the effects of sin. In our culture, we just don't call it sin any longer. We use words like systematic, or it's oppression, or it's disadvantage. But everyone feels the effect of sin. Every one of us has felt the effect of sin. Anyone who's been around it or who's done it, you know that there's a stain that remains. 
It, it, it's, sin has made its mark on us like, like Lady Macbeth. You guys, anybody, anybody had to read Macbeth in high school? Uh, it's, I mean, Shakespeare's just, he's the king. He's the, he's, he's the goat. He's an incredible. Um, you, you read about Lady Macbeth, and her husband and her have just killed King Duncan. And what does she say? She's trying to wash the blood off of her hands, and she says, the damned spot. I can't get it out. And she says, the smell of this blood is still there. All the perfumes of Arabia cannot sweeten this hand. That's that's what sin is like. It leaves this stain on all of humanity. And it's like, no matter how hard we work, no matter all, we can do all the good deeds in the world, we just can't scrub it out. But the gospel is this, Jesus' blood washes away the stain. Acts 3.19 says this, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, (laughs) absolved, and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Everybody who's felt sin, the stain of sin, wants that. Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you take the gospel into your heart and you say, Jesus, I want what you did to count for me, guess what? You get cleansed. The spot gets clean. Have you ever experienced that? Can you explain that? Secondly, the gospel provides a hope that can't be removed. Because Jesus was resurrected, we get to follow suit. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we're about to start seeing, it's my favorite time of year, I love spring, we're about to start seeing buds break. We're about to see leaves come. And you're gonna see just one leaf here, one leaf there, and then eventually a whole tree. (laughs) Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first bud to break. And eventually, those who are in Christ are gonna follow suit and life is gonna happen. Resurrection is gonna happen. My wife is in this uh, class. I didn't even tell you I was going to say it, share this. So if I get in trouble, we'll talk about it later. Not right now. Not right now. Um, my wife is in this class on death and dying. She's going to be a nurse. And so you gotta, she's going to see a lot of death and dying. And, and one of the things that they're teaching these nurses in this class, and this is so sad that it's, this is like a theology class. Anyways, I won't, I won't beat up on them too much. Anyway, one of the things that they're saying in this class is, hey, death isn't bad. It's a normal part of life. It's part of the cycle of life. We all die. Now, I get the sentiment, and maybe you've thought that, thought that before. You're like, man, i got to ease this whole pain of death. I'll just tell myself for all of life, it's just gonna, a natural thing that happens to everyone. The problem is, is I'm hopeless without resurrection. I can't live like that. That's not enough for me. I must know that there is life on the other side of death. Have you ever had somebody close to you die? Somebody who you really loved pass away. You ever had that happen? Death seems like an enemy then, huh? And that's actually what Jesus said. Jesus said the last enemy to be, be defeated is death. He didn't say, hey guys, listen, death's part of, it's a natural part of life. No, he said the last enemy to be defeated is death. And you're gonna follow suit when you're in me. We have a hope that even death can't remove. The gospel also gives us an identity that doesn't crush you or others. We move from getting an identity from the value we create to getting value from what Christ has done. (laughs) This is so rare. You see, all of life can be a struggle for many people because it is a pursuit for an identity. And for many, life, because of that, becomes a performance. They're constantly trying to prove their worth, constantly trying to show that they're really worth something. They're working for an identity rather than from an identity. Have you ever been there? 
And the performance can just be crushing. It's just this strain for significance. I'll prove myself through my grades. I'll prove myself through my service. I'll prove myself through my intellect or through my, my creativity. I'll prove myself that I'm really worth something. I'll make my mark on history and then I'll have an identity. But just watch, it's a treadmill. Or, or sometimes we create identities that need us to be better than others to exist. And so our identity is actually, it could be crushing us from our performance or it could be crushing the people around you because it's built upon being better than other people in some sense. And so you're constantly saying, well, I'm not the kind of person who lies like them. I'm a, t- I'm a truth teller, that's who I am. Well, you just crush somebody else by putting yourself up. Or you say, I'm not the kind of person who uh, is lazy. I work hard and that's why I have value. Well, just watch. You're going to get crushed, and you're going to crush the people around you. What the gospel does is it levels the playing field. It says every single person needs him equally. So so get humble, okay? The good news is that he came. Everybody needed him to come, and he came, and it's him who saved you. Not what you've done, not your performance or your effort. It's his performance, his effort. Don't make your actions more weighty than his. And then what happens is he says, look at this grace that I've given you. I've made you a child. I've given you a status that can't be removed. So now you live from that identity rather than for it. You don't have to prove yourself to God to be a child. He's already made you one. He's not, he's not wondering, I wonder if they're going to be a child. We'll see how they do. He's like, I've made them a child, and I can't wait for them to realize it. Lastly, the gospel is restoration of family without disappointment. The good news is connection to a father. We have connection to a father. Jesus teaches us to address God as a father. He says, when you pray, pray our father. And that reality changes everything. We're loved by a perfect father. And God is a father who's not gonna disappoint you. He has more than enough for every child and he doesn't play favorites. So there's no jealousy in this family. What he did for them, he could do for you. He has that capacity, that ability. And there's no disappointment. Well, I just wish that God had showed up here. I wish he had done that two things that tend to happen in every family. So do you know this personally? Do you know the gospel? This is the thing that's animating them. This is the thing that's giving them courage. This is the reason why, you know, you look back in the back of your Bibles, and, you, and, and, and I think most Bibles have it, but they have this, this kind of visual depiction of Paul's journeys, his missionary journeys right here. And it just shows all these different times, you know, and they're represented by different colors and different lines, that Paul was just traveled. Do you know how hard it is to travel in the first century? <laughs> Do you know how long it takes? He's taking boats and he's taking carts and he's taking horses and he's walking. Why? The gospel's animating him. It's a visual representation of passion for the gospel of Jesus. So do you know it? Are you living it? Can you share it? Secondly, I think we don't share the gospel because of the fear of man. I think a lot of us, I'm not gonna go too much into this because we talk about it all the time, but I think that a lot of us fear what people think more than we fear what God thinks. And here's the equation of the fear of man. It's my fear of others' opinions is greater than my desire for people to be saved, which equals a stressful yet meaningless life. Do you, like, do you want to get to the end of your life and you're like, it was really stressful and it meant nothing. <laughs> That's horrible. And guess what? Tonight, it doesn't have to be that way because you can fear what he thinks. You can live for him rather than what your friends think about you, rather than what Twitter thinks about you, rather than what people think about you. Many have been talked out of sharing the gospel in their minds because their fear of what people may think outweighs their fear of what God thinks. 
But here's the thing, you don't stop fearing what people think by trying not to care. I'm just not gonna care about what people think. I'm just not gonna care about people at all. You know what that does? That only leads to you loving people less. Jesus had the ability to love people and not live as though they were his judge. Do you have that ability to love people and not care? They're not gonna judge me, I can love them. He cared more about what the Father thought than what people thought. Thirdly, um, I think that we have sin in our lives that we feel disqualifies us. We don't share the gospel because we think, man, if I share the gospel and this person really knows my life, and maybe they do know my life really well, they're gonna think I'm a hypocrite. They're gonna think I'm preaching all of this good stuff and yet they're gonna look at my life and see that, man, has it really touched me yet? Now, if you think this, you've showed your cards a little bit. That's a religious way of thinking. We're not, here's the deal. When we share the gospel, we're not sharing a new plan that removes all immorality and the effect of immorality. We're sharing life. We're sharing life. And eventually, yeah, it transforms your life. It does. But we're sharing that we found a new source. Somebody put it this way. The gospel is a beggar who found bread telling other beggars where to find the bread. That, that's what the gospel is. It's not, it's not, hey, look at me. I'm pretty great. This new program that I have, it's a, it's a diet. You ever heard of the Daniel Fast? It's, um, you know, it's, we're going to read the, the Bible in a year. We're going to you know, get into our small groups and we're going to talk about the sermon. It, this is what you're invited into. That sounds horrible. I don't want to be invited into that. What I want to be invited into is life with a good father, life with my creator, hand in hand. It's a complete misunderstanding of what it means to be the righteousness of God. What that means is that over all your life, there's a banner that says, yes, they're forgiven. There's a banner over all your life that says, no matter what you do, this identity of child cannot be removed. You're not inviting people to become better. You're inviting people who are dead to come alive. Christianity isn't an invitation to a program. It's an invitation to a life of submitted conversation with your creator and if you have that, if you have that, you can share that. You can share that. Lastly, I think we don't share the gospel because we have a misunderstanding of eternity. Um, just like I believe that the new heavens and the new earth are real, and there are, the, I read Revelation 22, 21, and I go, oh, the hope that we have, it's so incredible. I can't wait for that day. I also believe that hell is a real place. Hell is real. The scriptures are not terribly clear on the description of hell. In some places, it's a lake of fire. In some places, it's a place where you, you're for all of eternity. In some places, it like totally just snuffs out your life. But here's what we know. Hell is a place that is absent of God's presence. See, God is present even here on earth. And some people have thought, well, there's probably no hell. We're living in hell. It's right now. Have you ever read the news? Have you ever looked around the globe? I'm telling you right now, this is not hell. God's presence is still here. You don't want to see what that's like. Jesus talked about it, and we must agree with Jesus. I believe that all humans will give an account. Those who are in Christ, everything in their life, all that they've done is now filtered through the blood of Jesus. That's the reality for so many of you tonight. So beautiful. Your life, when you come before God, the judge, he's gonna go, oh, my son. And look at all the things that he helped you do with his spirit. But there will be those who are forever separated from God through their works when they give an account. I don't want to soften the blow. There's an urgency. I don't want to soften the blow. We should be concerned about people going to hell. We should be concerned that they're going to spend an eternity without God. I don't want that. This is the urgency that the apostles had. And really what it is, is it's Jesus' heart for the lost. 
what the apostles were doing was they were reenacting the sacrifice of Jesus daily by taking pain, taking jail, taking hatred in order to see some saved. They're doing what he did. Let the pain come on me if it means that they get saved. We're invited to have this same heart, Jesus' heart for the lost. Jesus used two metaphors for people who are far from God. The first metaphor he used is people who are lost. The second metaphor is people who are sick. The sick need a doctor. And these two metaphors really reveal the heart of an evangelist. I really, these are two metaphors I want us to really get into our church. See, what does it mean to be lost? Jesus says there's people who are lost. What does it mean to be lost? It means that there's a place that you should be. If you're lost, it means that there's a home where you're not. So what is Jesus saying when there's people who are lost? He's saying there's people who belong here in this home. Go find them. It's so honoring. He's like, not like, there's a bunch of sinners out there. He doesn't say that. He says, there's people who are lost. There's lost people. They, they belong here. Come bring them home. Come bring them home. He also says that there, there are people who are sick. The sick need a doctor, not a punisher. <laughs> sick people are those who recognize that they need service. They can't get out of bed. They can't remedy themselves. So what does this mean? What is this metaphor? Ultimately, God wants to heal. He wants to resuscitate. He has a cure. So here's our message to those who are lost or sick. Come home and get healed. Come home and get healed. Sink this into our hearts as a church, God. For a while, um, I've just been seeing this uh, just kind of like, it's been the past, I don't know, there's been probably three or four weeks where we've actually just felt this weird need to ask anybody who wants to evangelize, anybody who feels called to be an evangelist, to come forward and we'd pray over you. And there's like 30 people who come forward. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. 30 people are like, I want to be an evangelist. I have that heart. I want to do that, those things. Um, that's just incredible. That's just so amazing. It's something that I want to stoke in our uh, community, in our families, this heart for evangelism. Um, and I honestly believe that a lot of you have a bit of the apostles' resolve in you. You're like, we're not going to obey man. We're going to obey God. So I, I, do, I, do just, I feel like this, this message is just like a beginning. It's a first step in the conversation around evangelism. And I want to tell you that our church is organized in two different ways for evangelism, to see the lost come to life in the message of Jesus. The first is Alpha. Who's heard about Alpha before? Just like a, a show of hands. Okay, many of you have heard about Alpha. Alpha is essentially, you come to Alpha, you get a meal, you watch a um, presentation about the deepest questions of life and how Jesus tends to answer those questions, and then you have a conversation about it. It's for people who are lost. It's for people who are questioning. It's for people who need a doctor. And so I want you to really think, who could I invite? When we do Alpha again in the fall, who could I invite to Alpha? Who am I gonna invite to come and actually come to life? Who do I know that's lost and needs a home? Who do I know that's sick and needs a doctor? The second way that we're organized for evangelism is all of you. You're the evangelists. We're the evangelists. What we want to see in our church is we want to see your neighbors come to faith, your coworkers come to faith. And you have to ask yourself, is my life speaking this message? And can I explain it? Is my life speaking this message and can I explain it? We're running out of time. Let's all stand up together and here's what I want to do to end. I just want us to imagine, I want us to just go to this place for a moment. I want us to ask God, who is it that I know who's lost? Who is it that I know who's sick? 
Just even do that right now. You can close your eyes if you don't want to be distracted. And just, God, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would show us who we know that's lost. I know, God, that you're going to bring a name to mind. You're going to bring uh, a face to mind. And so we just invite you. Show us who do we know that's lost? Who do we know that's sick? And would you just give us courage now, God, to talk to that person? Give us courage to talk to that person. Put your hand over your heart. I just want to pray real fast before we dismiss you guys. Um, say, say this after me. God, give me courage to walk in life. God, give me courage to share the gospel. God, give me courage to talk to that person. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to inspire many conversations from this evening, inspire many amazing moments from this moment, and would there be many who come to faith because of people, the people of Saints Hill Church. In Jesus' name.